Our scripture reading this morning begins with Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. <clears throat> he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again. And bore a son, and she called his name Onam. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her, 
also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We read also from the book of Joshua. First off, Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went out and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, 
you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And we turn to chapter 6, verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as she swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. We turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll read the opening of that Gospel, the first 18 verses. We're going to reflect upon a portion of the genealogy that Matthew gives us in verse 3, 5, and 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, Abiah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiah, Abiah the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Maton, Maton the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we're going to be singing from hymn 19, the verses 1, 2, and 3. <clears throat> Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus is traced through Joseph, his adoptive father, but thereby also his legal father. In fact, in the royal line of succession, which Matthew has given us here, there are a number of adoptions if you study the list of the generations. Adoptions were made to preserve the royal line intact. It is Luke in his gospel that gives us the biological line, which explains the differences between the two. Now Matthew's genealogy is streamlined into three groups of exactly 14 generations, from Abram to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus. Matthew's done that deliberately so that people could easily, or more easily, memorize, as was done in those days, the genealogy. Here and there, generations have been skipped so that we get exactly the number 14 in each important group. But there's one very strange element to this genealogy. Here and there, and only here and there, women are mentioned. 
And it's those mentions of women that we're going to focus on this morning. I preach to you the Word of God under the title, Four Odd Women. We're going to look, first of all, at their oddity, at their stories, and finally, of God's grace. Four Odd Women. It's interesting if you think about and reflect why precisely these women would have been mentioned. Surely there are other women that we know about who were wives of the people mentioned here that would have been fantastic to mention. Just think of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It's the Apostle Peter that calls her to our attention when he says, remember that Sarah called Abraham Lord and In the letter to the Hebrews, even more tellingly, talking about the wife of Abraham, we're told in chapter 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised If you're going to mention any wife in that genealogy, surely you'd want to mention Sarah. But no, she's not mentioned. In fact, the four ladies that are mentioned, none of them are Israelites. That's obvious for Rahab. She was a Canaanite from the city of Jericho. For Ruth, she was a Moabite. Tamar is not expressly said to be Israelite or not in Scripture. However, she's certainly not said to be of Judah's family. And a Jewish tradition, indeed, she was considered a foreigner. Not strange when you see that Judah even married a foreigner. The Fourth lady is Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah, known as the Hittite. And again, in Jewish tradition, as you would expect, she is considered to be a foreigner. But that's not the only criterion for why these four ladies would be mentioned. There were, in that genealogy we've read, other non-Israelite mothers. For example... King Rehoboam's mum was Naamah of the country of Ammon, an Ammonite thus. But she's not mentioned. No, the women that are mentioned are not only not Israelite, but they are women with stories to tell, embarrassing stories. Stories about sin. The kind of stories that enemies would gossip about. Think about that. Because it's rather unusual, to say the least, to highlight embarrassment if you are giving the genealogy of the king. And this is the genealogy of King Jesus. But Matthew is deliberately highlighting Very embarrassing moments 
in that genealogy. Well, let's turn to the stories that he insinuates. These women are mentioned because you're expected to know what happened with respect to them. We've read Genesis 38, the story about Tamar. Tamar was given as a wife to the firstborn son of Judah. Ur was his name. But we're told that Ur was a wicked man. And for that reason, God put him to death even before his wife was able to conceive a child. If he's the firstborn son, it's important that there be an heir, important to Judah, but important to the whole family of Israel. For Judah is to be the tribe out of which the king will come, the Messiah. Judah needs an heir. But God had given to his people laws for how to deal with it if you get married and an heir is necessary and your wife dies. And it's called the Leverite law. It's got nothing to do with Levites. It has everything to do with the word lever, which in Latin means brother-in-law. So literally, it's the law about brother-in-laws. You find it in Deuteronomy, but even before Deuteronomy, it was in effect... Basically, what it meant was if your, the oldest brother dies before he has any children, particularly a male heir, his brother is expected to go into the widow to grant for him a child, a child who will not belong to his brother but will be raised as the original husband's heir. He will inherit not only the land and possessions of that deceased brother, but he will inherit also the title and anything that follows from that. And so Judah gave Tamar to the next brother down, Onan. But Onan knew the consequences and did not want to provide an heir to his older brother. The Lord considered that wickedness so severe that the Lord also killed him. At this point, Judah, who is scared of God's anger, wants to protect his youngest son, Shelah. And although he, with words, promises him to Tamar, in his heart, he knows he's not going to go through with it. So he tells Tamar, well, he's not old enough yet. You just be a widow and wait for him to grow up. But when he does grow up, Tamar does not receive him as her rightful husband, as somebody that is going to raise up children to be heirs to Judah. Tamar, of course, devises a plan. She sits on the road as a prostitute, a cult prostitute, no less. In other words, a prostitute working for one or other foreign god, as was common among the pagan nations at the time. 
So that when Judah actually goes in to this prostitute, he's not just committing immorality with a prostitute, but at the same time committing immorality in a way that transgresses even the first commandment, a prostitute that he thinks is dedicated to another god. And nevertheless, Tamar, who has set this up so that she can have a rightful heir from Judah's line, when she becomes pregnant, she is threatened with burning. That is to say, she would be stoned to death and her body burned. But she has taken precautions and proves that it is Judah's child. Judah recognizes that she is more righteous than he. For the heir must come. Perez is born from that relationship. And his name enters the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. A sorry, sordid, and sinful affair. Then we come to Rahab, another prostitute, but one who came to faith in the Lord. And you've read the story, we've read it this morning, how she was adopted by the Israelites. She had come to recognize that through everything that had been done by God in Egypt and thereafter as well, God, the God of Israel, must be the God of heaven and earth. And she has faith in him and his power. But it can't have been easy for her and for her family to have been adopted into the Israelite clans. Number one, she's a prostitute. Number two, her and her family are foreigners. They're Canaanites. They're people that ought to be exterminated. And can you imagine how difficult it may well have been for them to integrate into Israel? Who really would want to be close friends with a Canaanite? And have you thought of this? Who would be willing to marry a prostitute? And if you think it's a bit odd to do so in our day, back in the times of the Old Testament, nobody wanted to marry. It was not done at all to marry any girl that was not a virgin. You just didn't do it. Any girl that had been immoral before marriage knew that she was destined to life as a single. And yet... Somebody marries Rahab. And she has progeny. And she enters the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. It's unlikely that 
Rahab was Boaz's actual mum. Chronologically speaking, that's incredibly unlikely. More likely that Boaz was a grandson to Rahab. But that brings us to Ruth. And it helps us a little bit to understand the story of Ruth. Because we all know how Nohmi had left the land of Israel because of famine. She came to the land of Moab. Have you ever thought why she did so? Well, because she was hungry, you would say. And there was food in Moab. But was that an act of faith? Absolutely not. It was the time of the judges. And if God brought famine on the Israelites, it was to convict them of their sin so that they would turn to Him, who is the only one that provides blessing, turn to Him in prayer, asking for forgiveness, and then be blessed by the Lord. That is what famine was supposed to engender, to call people to repent. What does Naomi do with her husband? They don't repent, they just leave. They walk off. Out of the nation, of the church, to live in a foreign country where there is no church. And where their sons marry foreigners who are not of the Lord. That's the story of Ruth. Except that at the end when the men have all died and Naomi hears that there's food again in Israel and wants to return, all of a sudden Ruth has become somebody that is not only affectionately tied to her mother-in-law Naomi, but to God, the God of Israel. And it's really only God that works faith, such faith in the heart of somebody. And Ruth comes back to Israel with Naomi. But it's not easy. They're poor. They have no land. They have to glean to make a living. And yet, Boaz, a wealthy farmer, ends up marrying her. A foreigner. A Moabite. Remember, Moab was that nation that tried to curse Israel before they went into the promised land. You're not supposed to like them. You're supposed to hate them. But you see, Boaz, Boaz is raised up by the Lord to meet Ruth. He, of anybody in Israel, would recognize the difficulty. If indeed Rahab, the prostitute, was his grandmother, And so, Ruth finds a place in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, a Moabite, a people that were to be hated to the tenth generation. And finally, the genealogy makes mention of the wife of Uriah. We know her name, Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba, of course, was the lady that David committed adultery with. And while Bathsheba was married to a foreigner who had been promoted to become an important general in David's army and thereby lived in Jerusalem, we can also gather from Scripture that Bathsheba herself had also turned to the Lord. You see, when David spied on her, it was dusk, and we're told she was bathing on the rooftop. The only reason that anybody would have to bathe on a rooftop and not in your house would be to take a ritual bath. A ritual bath had to be a bath in water that was not moved by human hands. In other words, water that was gathered directly from the rain. And so everybody had a bathtub outside. If you're in a city, it'll be on the roof. You do it at dusk so that, indeed, you're not going to be seen. Why have a ritual bath? The only reason that you need to take a ritual bath, according to the laws of Leviticus, is because you want to come and pray to the Lord in his temple. And that's one of the rituals you have to go through to prepare yourself for that. She's preparing herself for prayer and sacrifice in God's temple. David spies on her and that's the catalyst for adultery. Another sorry story, made even more sorry by the fact that David tries to cover it up by having her husband killed in battle. And it's only exposed when God, through Nathan the prophet, confronts David with his sin. David does repent, but there are consequences. And God has his family fall apart as a result. The child of adultery is taken by the Lord to be with himself. But another child from Bathsheba becomes king after David, Solomon. Four stories of sin. Four stories of Gentile blood in the Israelite royal line. But four stories of Gentiles who embrace by faith the Lord God of Israel. On the surface, embarrassments. But they speak of God's grace. Matthew's not only not afraid of embarrassments, he highlights them for us. He wants us to see them. That's why he mentions the names of these four women. And when he traces the line of the Lord Jesus from Abraham through to David, through to Joseph, the royal line, yes, he brings this sin to the fore. Because you see, one of Matthew's points is quite clearly that this royal line of Israel does not stand out because of its worthiness. 
But one of the themes that runs right through Scripture is that God's strength is shown in human weakness. God doesn't choose people that are in and of themselves worthy and strong. He chooses the simple and the faithful. Think only of the position of Joseph and Mary. By the time the Lord Jesus is born, the royal line in Israel has become incognito, in other words, deliberately kept quiet for political reasons. It's too dangerous. And Joseph himself has had to run away up north because the land that he still has down in Bethlehem is unable to be farmed. He can't afford to. And we know indeed from historical sources that there were many farmers in, in that predicament at the time. The taxes were so high that most farmers walked off their land. What the authorities did was that whenever there was a census, you were given tax exemptions to encourage you to go back to farming that land. It's clear that Joseph tried that for he stayed several years in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. But eventually, of course, for threat of persecution, had to flee. You see it when the Lord Jesus is born and his parents take him to the temple. They can't afford a lamb. They take the poor man's sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves. God's strength is shown in human weakness. But you see, the Lord Jesus came to save and the Lord Jesus came to deliver us from sin and from its consequences. It is Matthew in this very same chapter that is going to say in verse 21 through the angel, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, literally Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Think about that. He will save his people from their sins. And what have we just seen, even in that genealogy? Sin after sin after sin. But thankfully, in those four women, there is not only repentance, there is God's grace to take them up into his church. The Lord Jesus is going to bring this salvation to the world. It will eventually be extended to Gentiles throughout the whole earth. Because you don't need to be worthy to be saved. You don't need to be worthy to find forgiveness of sin. You need to be humble, penitent, and to ask truly for that forgiveness. And having been forgiven, to show thankfulness. That's all that God asks. 
It's salvation through grace, by faith. Faith alone. And it's that salvation that the Lord Jesus will bring. Born into this world in such sorry circumstances. Persecuted. And eventually put on a cross by his own people who hand him over to the Romans. But all part of God's plan. Through this weakness, crucifixion, God's strength, God's salvation will be demonstrated. And indeed, the Lord Jesus rose again on the third day and he has ascended into heaven and taken his place at the right hand of God the Father from where he rules this world even today. And we can be thankful that by God's grace, we too have become a part of his people, his family. Not because of anything good in us, but through the grace and through the work of his word and spirit in our hearts and lives. Brothers and sisters, as we reflect upon these things, let us be genuinely thankful. Amen.